I was praying for you guys on my way. I was in Tulsa yesterday and um, kind of on the whole flight to Tulsa and here um, just asking God, what do you want to say to these amazing people at the Life Center? And I, I felt like God gave me a word that I want to share with you this morning that I feel is, is also kind of unique to this region of the world, this region of America and to this church. And the, the word that I felt the Lord said was that this was a house of extravagance. And that makes sense to me because that's what I've known of Charles and Anne for the last 15 years as a people of extravagance. And I'm fairly connected to this region. I married someone from Lancaster County, so I am a Gentile, but I've been grafted in, you know, so you, you have to accept me. I'm fully grafted in. And, um, and so I, I've lived here on and off a couple times for about two years total, back in the day mostly, and I'm fairly familiar with the history here. And um, I am aware that this place has given birth to many youth movements in its history. It's given birth to many missions movements in its history. In fact, many would say that this region of the world is the most generous towards world missions of any place in the world. And that that's actually a statistic. This has given uh, birth to many worship movements. When I first moved here, uh, Tuesday night Bible study was exploding and was probably literally the largest Bible study in America at the time. And it was youth. It was youth and it was missions. It was the nations. It was faith. And this has been the history all the way back to the Anabaptist roots of this region they were also birthed in revival fire. They were birthed in a passion for the nations, a passion for revival, a passion for the presence of God. And I just feel that the Lord is doing it again. He's done it many times in your history, but he's doing it again. And at the core of these missions movements and these worship movements and these youth movements, at the very core, in my mind, if you were to strip it all back and go where there are lots of dynamics and lots of things that happen, but in my mind, at the very core of the heart of those that catalyzed these movements were part of these movements was a heart of extravagance. It was an extravagant love for Jesus. It was a heart that was overflowing like a broken alabaster jar on the feet of Jesus going, God, we'll give you everything. Not just the bare minimum, not just the status quo. We'll give you everything. Everything we have is yours. And I feel like the Lord is saying over the Life Center, you have been a house of extravagance and you will be a house of extravagance. And when the whole world might cry out in fear, the Life Center is gonna cry out in extravagance. When the whole world might shrink back, maybe it's the fear of economic disaster, or maybe it's the fear of where are we going politically, or maybe it's the fear of the cultural kind of insanity that's happening around us. Maybe it's the fear of you know, warfare on a global level right now. And the world, the temptation of that is that we as believers even would stay believers, but we would shrink back a little bit. When crisis hits, that we would just hesitate a little bit, that we'd lose a little bit of faith, we'd maybe open the back door to a little bit of unbelief. But I feel the Lord saying, not the Life Center. You're a house of extravagance. You're never gonna stop giving. You're never gonna stop going. You're never gonna stop worshiping. You're never gonna stop praying. You're never gonna stop championing the next generation. You're never gonna stop praying for revival. It's who you are. You were birthed out of the Jesus revolution. There's no going back now until there's another Jesus revolution. And I feel out of this house and out of even this region of America is going to come an extravagant offering of love for Jesus that helps stir and awaken the rest of the nation as to how to respond even in times of crisis. We all feel it. At times we hit personal crisis. Things happen in our own lives. And, and the attempt of the enemy is dual. It's not only that the crisis would sting and then there would be a literal pain through that, but then also through the pain that we would become a little bit hesitant in our faith. Our, we just take a little step back and we may stay believers, we stay faithful, but we might become safe believers. 
And we all know that safe Christianity will never reach America. Safe Christianity will never reach the nations. Safe Christianity will never touch the 3.2 billion people around the world still waiting for the gospel. The only thing that will touch the uttermost parts of the earth is extravagant Christianity. The only reason that we've seen what we've seen over the last hundreds of years across the earth in terms of the forward movement of the kingdom at the core of every one of those movements has been extravagant Christianity. Sometimes even as believers, we can get into a little bit of like a faithfulness rut where we kind of get into a rut of staying faithful, which is to be commendable, it is biblical, it is honorable. But sometimes that faithfulness can dig a little bit of a rut where we wake up in the morning, sort of check the boxes of faithfulness instead of actually walking in the extravagance of the gospel, which is what we were created for. And at times we can feel we're in that rut, stuck on train tracks, just kind of headed in the right direction, but sort of stuck, just going through the motions. Like, yes, showing up. Yes, reading our Bibles. Yes, praying a little prayer. Yes, you know, you know sharing here and there. Yes, loving Jesus. But he didn't create us just for faithfulness. He truly created us for extravagance. And I want to take us to the scriptures to talk a little bit about this. And my senses or my heart is, is that your hearts would explode because I just want to give you language for who I feel you already are. I just want to put some Bible verses to what I believe the Life Center has modeled for many, many years and has a very bright future. Last night we experienced something special with God marking the 25s and under at the end of the conference. And I just feel there, this, this place was made for youth movement. This church was made for youth movement. And at the very core of that are gonna be 16 year olds that are so extravagantly in love with Jesus, they can't not talk about it. They can't. It's gonna be 14 year olds that refuse to be silenced no matter how canceling the culture becomes. It's gonna be 18 year olds who go, uh, you know, you, the whole world can bow their knee and I will not. Throw me into the fiery furnace, but I am not bowing my knee to any idol. You were made for this. This is this region of America. This is this region of the world. And this is who you are as the life center. I want to take us to a moment in the life of David to kind of model or talk about this life of extravagance. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, I'll summarize some of this, is that David has now become king. Saul has been king for 40 years. Saul was content to lead Israel without the ark of God's presence in the middle of his kingdom. So he was content, he was okay to kind of just live and rule in his own strength and his own power. David becomes king. He knows that he was pulled from being a shepherd on the back hills of Bethlehem. He knows the hand and the heart of God. He knows he was chosen because Samuel was sent to find a man who was after God's own heart. So now David becomes king and he is totally discontent to rule Israel void of the presence of God. So one of the first things that he goes to do in 2 Samuel chapter six is to get the ark. I want the presence of God in the heart of my kingdom. You know the story, he goes to get it as he's bringing it back to Jerusalem. The oxen that the cart was on, they stumble. The cart must, you know, hit a rock or something. Uzzah reaches out to steady the ark. He touches it and he dies. And it says because of his lack of reverence for God and for the presence of God. Now David's response in, in 2 Samuel chapter 6 is he's angry. He's frustrated. He goes, God, you know my heart. I just wanted to bring the ark back into the, you know, to Jerusalem. I wanted to bring it into the center of my kingdom. And now this has happened. And I don't know what to do. So he leaves the ark at the home of Obed-Edom. And it stays there for some months while David continues on with the beginnings of his rulership. But then he hears that God is blessing the home of Obed-Edom. And he says to himself, I've got to go get the ark. I refuse to lead this kingdom without the ark in the middle of it. 
And he must have done some research. Chronicles gives us a little bit of a more of a picture of that, that he realizes he looks back on the books of the law that the ark was never meant to be carried on man-made objects. It was meant to be carried by people, by humans, which is such a picture for us today because the temptation is to build programs and build structures and build stuff and then hope God fills it. When in reality, he built us to fill us to become his vessels, the carriers of his presence. So David goes back and he obeys the law. He gets the Levites. He realizes this is an obedience thing and I've got to stay obedient to the minimum of the law. I'd be a fool not to and that's apparently what happened the first time I tried. So he gets the Levites and this time they begin to carry the ark back to Jerusalem. It says here when verse 13, when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, they sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Then it goes on to say that he was wearing a linen ephod and he was dancing before the Lord with all of his might while he and all of Israel bringing up the uh, the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. The ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord, set it in a place inside the tent that David had pitched for it, David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he'd finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. He gave them a loaf of bread, cake of dates, cake of raisins to each person, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked, in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow, or some of your translations say fool, would do. David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler of the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. I will be humiliated in my own eyes. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Now, I want you to get the picture here because I think there's something so key that for years and years of reading this story, I never saw until recently, is that David, when he realized he had missed a step, he went back to the law and he found the step. That was obedience. Obedience was that the Levites would carry the ark. So he does that. But there was something more in the heart of David than obedience, And this might sound counterintuitive at first, but go with me on this journey as I want to propose to you that obedience is the the low end of the standard of following God. For a long time, we've made obedience like the radical thing. I want to propose to you obedience is kindergarten Christianity. This is entry-level Christianity. This is the person at the end of the day who worked all day for the Lord and then comes in and, you know, it's time to eat. And he goes, it's not for me to eat. I'm still a servant. He goes, I don't, I don't just deserve to eat. I'm still a servant at the end of the day. He goes, obedience is the bare minimum. Obedience is like kindergarten Christianity. But for many years, I feel like we've held that to such a high standard that we have missed the possibility of what God's actually calling us to, which is called extravagance. So David obeys God by putting the ark on the Levites. But then he goes, I'm not done. There's more in my heart than obedience. Every six steps, we're going to sacrifice. And we're going to show God how much we love him and how much we want his presence in our city. 
We're gonna show him how much he is Lord of Jerusalem and he is Lord of his people Israel. Then it says that David at some point in this, we don't know uh, know when or the details, at some point he must take off his kingly garments, which are distinguished above anybody else's clothes. Only the king is dressed like a king. And imagine as all the people are watching, the sacrifices are taking place, and their king takes off his kingly garments, and underneath those he has a linen ephod, which is the garment of a priest. And all the people look on and go, our king is a priest. And David makes an example to all the people of Israel, go, I may be your king, but before I was your king, I was a priest to him. And underneath these kingly garments is the heart not of a king, but the heart of a priest who played before the Lord with a little harp as a shepherd boy that never imagined he was to be a king. I didn't sign up to be a king, I signed up to be a priest. And though I might be king, I'm still a priest first. And imagine the people of Israel looking on at the extravagance of the devotion of their king. Then it says that he's dancing around wildly in front of, and this word in the Hebrew literally means he's spinning around wildly in front of the procession as they lead it back to Jerusalem, which is why his wife is just distraught. She's like, you are embarrassing yourself. But this too would have meant something to the people of Israel during this time where there's many wars between tribes and one group is conquering another and one city's taking over another. You read, you know, of course, in Kings and Samuel and throughout the scriptures, Judges. I mean, this is happening all the time. And it was traditional in that time when one city maybe conquered another one that they would take all the remaining warriors who hadn't died and they would bring them back, of course, as slave labor to their own city, their own nation. But it was tradition in a way to sort of mock the enemy that they would often take either a king or one of the most, you know, one of the biggest warriors of the group they had just overcome. They would strip them down and they would make them dance in front of the procession and they were literally called the fool. And it was a way that they boasted over their enemies. And imagine you're coming back to your own city and all your people are looking on and they go, we've won, we're victorious. And in the front of that, they would be mocking this warrior of this other kingdom that they had overcome. And that person was dancing like a fool. What do you think Israel thought when they saw their king dancing in front of the procession in a linen ephod and all of Israel would have looked on and go, oh my gosh, our king has been conquered by another king. Our king is making a statement that he might be the king of Israel, but God is the king of David. That David might be the king of Israel, but more than that, God is the king of Israel. Our king is a conquered, victorious king. Our king has submitted himself to the king of kings and the Lord of lords, not just as a priest, but as a servant. And what I love about all of this, and I missed so many years that I read this, is that none of this was commanded. None of this was obedience. All of this was David going, I know who you are. When my family rejected me, you found me. When I was uninvited to the greatest moment in our family's history, when Samuel came to visit our town and called out our family, and I was left with the sheep, when everybody disregarded me as the runt of the family, you found me. You knew who I was. You saw me when no one else saw me. And this overflowing heart of David goes, I am not just obeying you as I bring your presence into the center of Israel. 
I can't stop the extravagance from flowing. I'm gonna sacrifice like crazy. Bowls all along the way. I'm gonna wear my priestly garment. Then I'm gonna do what no king has done before. I'm gonna play the part of the fool in front of my entire people so that they would know who you are in my life. They would know how I feel about you. Then his wife mocks him and what does he say to her? You haven't seen anything yet. You haven't seen anything yet. You clearly don't know what is in my heart. The heart of Mikal, his wife, was the heart of the bare minimum. It was the heart of, of baseline obedience. Maybe even the heart of kind of faithfulness, but stuck in a faithfulness rut. The heart of David was the heart of extravagance. The next passage goes on from here, and I'll, I'll, I'll wrap this section up with this, is it says that after the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies around him. Now this is the moment of temptation. This is where in America we have watched that the safer Christianity became in our nation, the less potent Christianity became. That the easier it was to become a Christian, the less power there was in Christianity. And David's at that moment in his life where things are good. He's got peace on all his borders. No one's warring against him. He has built his own kingdom. It's beautiful. He's got his palace. Everything's looking great for the king. Guys, this is the moment where so many of us go into coasting mode. This is the moment where we lose our fire. This is the moment where we lose our own extravagance. Things are comfortable, bank accounts okay, kids are doing good. I mean, society's a mess, but we're kind of doing okay. It's a mess out there, but we're kind of safe in here. And it's so easy in this moment to coast. And this could have been the moment for David to lose his fire. He's not a shepherd anymore. He's not poor anymore. He's not forgotten anymore. He's not out in the fields anymore. He's not forgotten by his family anymore. He's the king of Israel. He's established peace on his borders. He has wealth and a palace, but don't you love this? David is, could finally put his feet up, but not David. He goes, here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. I don't know about you, and I think maybe for far too long, we've done a disservice to the word striving. And sometimes we've used striving as an excuse to not do much. Sometimes we've called people who do a lot for God and we think, oh, they're just a, a Martha. Martha's issue wasn't doing a lot for God. Martha's issue was that her doing a lot for God had disconnected her from the heart of God. But sometimes we've called striving, you know, those who do a lot for God or even sometimes we feel, oh no, God, I don't wanna strive. I just wanna propose to you that striving is more of an issue of salvation the scriptures actually invite us to strive in our sanctification. We don't strive for something we can't earn called salvation, but when we get saved, you better strive for holiness or you won't have it. I, no, no man who ever wanted to win the heart of a girl didn't strive for her heart. Those guys are still single. No, come on. Like any guy who wanted to win the heart of a young lady didn't just sit back and go, I'm just gonna rest in the Lord. Just gonna rest in the Lord. Yeah, yeah, he's still resting in the Lord in his parents' basement right now. <laughs> Single, okay? No, no, if any guy has a brain, he's gonna see the young lady and he's gonna do whatever it takes to win her heart, is he not? Is he not? And then any good husband isn't gonna take her to the marriage altar, make vows, and then not put his feet up and just go, I won the day, it's over. No, 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 any good husband's gonna be 20 years in still chasing his wife's heart. 
30 years in, still extravagant. This was David. He goes, I've won. You're in the kingdom. 24-7 worship's going on. Peace on our borders. He goes, but God, I want to do more for you. Oh, I want to do more for you. He goes, I have an idea. You've been living in a tent. You've been moving around through the desert with the children of Israel. You've been kind of moving around Israel for the last years. He goes, I have an idea. Please let me build you a house. He goes, I've got a house. Why don't you have a house, God? And Nathan hears from the Lord, and this is what the Lord says. Go and tell my servant David. This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I've not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I moved with all of the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then... Tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock. I appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the great men on earth. I will provide a home for my people Israel. Skipping down to the end, he says, and your house, David and your kingdom will endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and he said, who am I? Sovereign Lord, what is my family? that you have brought me this far as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant and this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. I love this interaction, don't miss it. David sitting in safety, sitting in the comfort of his newly established kingdom, God, I wanna build you a house. God goes, no one's wanted to build me a house. He goes, I've never commanded anyone to build me a house. Where did you even get this idea? Extravagance. He goes, David, because you wanted to build me a house, I'm gonna build you a house and this house will last forever, and I will bring my Messiah through your family line, that this man of extravagance and his longing and desire to build God a house establishes an eternal covenant with the house of David. Why? Extravagance, extravagance. What will it look like when extravagance hits the church like never before? Not entitlement, not fear, not safety, extravagance. The early church grew 40% every 10 years for 300 years. 40% every 10 years for 300 years. Why? Look at the early church. Why did Barnabas sell his property and give it to the church? Not obedience. No one asked him to. Can't find a biblical commandment to sell your property and give it to the church? Extravagance. There were two major pandemics in the first 300 years of Christianity. The pagans left their dying to die. If they got sick, they threw them out on the streets. The pagans fled the cities in masses. You know who stayed? The Christians. You know who rescued those sick people off the streets? The Christians. Why did the church grow 40% every 10 years for 300 years? Extravagance. Not just obedience. Extravagance. What will happen when the, church, when the world in America looks on at an extravagant church? Extravagant forgivers extravagant redeemers, extravagant with the, those who least deserve it, extravagant with the most broken, extravagant with the most hurting. 
What will it look like when the church is willing to go anywhere in the world for the sake of the gospel, the hardest places in the world, the most difficult, the least reached, that no one else is willing to go, and the world will look on and go, what's inside of those believers that they will give their lives for a people not their own, that they would understand the good news of Jesus, extravagance? What does it look like in our own lives right now to have rekindled extravagance in our marriages? rekindled extravagance in our families, rekindled extravagance in our communities, our neighborhoods, the workplace. I say to our young people today, what does it look like? Because you have gone through the insanity of the last two years and three years, whatever it is, we don't even want to talk about it. Let's just call it insanity. But you went through it. You saw it at a young age where you're more impressionable. It's not like it was your second or third time. Charles and Anne lived through the sexual revolution. They saw the broken down society. They saw the attack on society, but then they saw the Jesus revolution. So it's different for them when they go through the last two or three years. They're like, we've been here before and we saw what God did. But for most 18 year olds in the room, the last two to three years were insanity at a political level, at a spiritual level, at you know, spiritual leaders falling, at an economic level, at a pandemic level, at almost every level, division, and all of that would want to make 18-year-olds hesitant and entitled. But what will happen when the world looks on at 18-year-olds extravagant like David? We talk about the fire of God, and I want to propose to you that the fire of God is a heart that is extravagantly in love with Jesus. That's what it is. And it manifests through many personalities, but that's what it is. Fire is extravagance. It's like John chapter 12. Why don't you stand up as we close? It's like John chapter 12, where Jesus is six days away from his crucifixion. The threats of death are increasing against him. The Pharisees are mounting their case to capture him, to arrest him. This is like a moment of crisis. And we probably wouldn't think this was the moment to come and waste a year's wages washing his feet. But this is the moment that Mary goes into extravagance. Jesus didn't ask for it. Jesus didn't command it. Couldn't find a Bible verse saying, and when you're with Jesus, give him all your perfume, no matter what it costs you. You couldn't stop Mary. You couldn't stop her. And she becomes the one to prepare him for his burial because of extravagance. Extravagance. And I believe this is a house of extravagance. I wanna pray, and similar to last night, I, I was just gripped in this, didn't do this in the first service, but I just felt second service, is I wanna pray specifically for those 25 and under, specifically, because I just feel the warfare against this generation to hesitate, to get cautious out of cancel culture, to feel like everything we say is gonna be wrong. We don't say it, we get in trouble. We say it, we said it wrong. And it causes hesitation, insecurity in the heart of a generation. And I just believe God wants to baptize this next generation in extravagance. If you're 25 and under and you want this, just come to the front right now. I just want to pray. 25 and under, if you want this, this lifestyle of extravagance, come to the front. It's for all of us. It's absolutely for all of us. No matter our age, I wanna believe that the Holy Spirit's gonna ignite this in our hearts, but I specifically want us to cry out. I think Christianity could be this simple, guys. Wake up in the morning, stare at Jesus, get overwhelmed by his love, and all day long break your alabaster jar at his feet. That's it. 
Life ought to be one long broken alabaster jar. It ought to be one long expensive perfume poured out at the feet of Jesus, poured out on the hearts of the lost, poured out in the far-flung places of the earth, poured out on the broken, the depressed, and the suicidal, poured out on all of those around us. Christianity ought to be one giant broken bottle of perfume. That's what we got saved for. That's what we got saved for. Not a little obedience and not just steady for the next 67 years. That's to be commendable, but that's the baseline. Our Savior died an extravagant death to release extravagant Christianity on the earth. So Holy Spirit, we pray for these, these catalysts of extravagance. God, we pray for every young person in here right now. Would you pour out your spirit on them? God, I'm asking for extravagance to rise in their hearts. If you're in here, would you just begin to pray for them? Just begin to lift your own voices for them, each one of them. God, pour out extravagance on them. I'm asking God, any of them that feel that faithfulness rut, would you break them out of it today? God, I'm asking any that feel they're just going through the motions, they're just a little bit bored in their faith, God, would you exhilarate them with your love today? God, any of those that feel that hesitation when I'm at school, when I'm with friends, the, the culture is so insane today. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to say it. I feel like I'm always on the verge of getting in trouble. I know I'm just gonna get labeled or canceled. Father, I pray obliterate all of that. I pray that fear would be shattered, God. Shatter fear, shatter hesitation. And I ask for courage and boldness that they would know that the truth of Jesus is the most loving thing on the planet. There is no greater news, there is no greater love than to present the love of Jesus. Father, I pray, fill them with extravagance. God, I'm asking every young person that their secret place in life would overflow with extravagance. God, I'm asking that they would fall in love with the Word of God. I'm praying they would fall in love with prayer. God, I pray that they would have the joy of putting their phones away, closing their laptops, turning their iPads off, and getting on their knees and meeting face to face with the living God. Father, I pray, raise up Davids. Raise up Davids, Lord who simply love to minister to you, God. Raise up David's wearing the linen ephod, priests before anything else, God. Father, I pray for an undignified generation. I'm asking for an undignified generation, God. Would you all begin to pray that right now? An undignified generation. If you're standing up front, would you begin to ask, God, make me undignified for you. Make me undignified for you. Not striving, this is love. This isn't striving, this is love. Pour it out, Jesus. Pour it out, God, extravagance. Mark them, God. Father, I'm praying that your love would crash in on every heart. Where there's discouragement, where there's depression, where there's fear, would you come and crash in right now with extravagant love. Father, where there's trauma, I pray that you would come and bring healing. Father, what you can do, the blood of Jesus over every past traumatic event, God, that would cause them to hesitate in their step, that would make them feel unworthy of extravagance or unworthy of courage, I'm asking right now, come and heal it in Jesus' name. Your blood is enough. Your blood is enough. His blood is enough. His blood is enough. 
for every past failure. His blood is enough for every thought that we're not proud of. His blood is enough for every ounce of trauma and his blood is enough to release extravagance in our hearts, no matter our past, no matter our present and no matter our personality. Father, release it, the fragrance of extravagance. God, let it spread across Harrisburg. Let it spread across Lancaster, Father. Let this whole region be touched by a youth movement marked with extravagance, God. Thank you for what you're doing in Asbury College, God. It was a picture of extravagant devotion. God, do it here, do it across America, do it in Europe, do it in the nations, God. Raise up a generation marked with extravagance, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Just receive it from him. Just receive it by faith. Thank you, Jesus.